And we did very little. <laughs> we called the UN Security Council meeting. Hello, everybody. You are listening to the audio podcast, which is called Ukraine Decoded. My name is Viktor Kovalenko. I am from the United States. As a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran, I organize expert discussions about the Russian war, security in Europe and geopolitics to help Ukraine informationally. My guest today is Ian Kelly. He was an ambassador of the United States to Georgia from 2015-2018 and the U.S. ambassador to the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe from 2010-2013. to Also, Mr. Kelly held a variety of high-level roles at the U.S. State Department, including serving as a department spokesman under Secretary Hillary Clinton. Currently, Mr. Kelly is an ambassador in residence at Northwestern University in Illinois. Ambassador Kelly, welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much, Victor, for, for having me. Today is exactly eight months since Russian President Vladimir Putin launched the full-scale war against Ukraine. Did you expect that Russia will invade Ukraine like that? That is a great question. I would not have thought that he would launch a full-scale uh, invasion, the, the, the kind that he, that he did launch. I didn't think that it was uh, really in his interests uh, because it just was a tremendous strategic miscalculation of, on the one hand, the uh, response of the international community, and he got repeated warnings from uh, from President Biden and from European leaders that uh, there would be a very harsh response. But uh, he did not really anticipate that the Ukrainians would uh, would resist him. And uh, he, I think he really did think that it would be like a three or four day affair that um, the Ukrainians, that President Zelensky would, uh, you know, fold his cards and uh, and run. But so it was a, a, a tremendous miscalculation. Having said that, as we were watching what was happening between December and February, uh, it became increasingly clear that he was going to launch an invasion because of all the forces that he was arraying. He had the kind of mixture of forces and and uh, support units that you would need for a, uh, an invasion. And it clearly wasn't just a matter of, of your classic saber rattling to try and uh, try and bully Ukraine into accepting Ukrainian terms. So when it happened, it wasn't a surprise just because uh, he had uh, shown that he had the capability to do it. And of course, he's not the kind of leader who's going to back away once he's uh, shown his capability. The Western countries and the US in particular are actively arming and supporting Ukraine right now. Unfortunately, it wasn't done in 2014, during the first Russian attempt to invade. So the Russian military, without insignias and camouflaged as so-called green men, easily annexed Crimea and then orchestrated a bloody war in the Donbass region. Why didn't the West help Ukraine eight years ago? Yeah, that's a very depressing question for me personally, because you know, President Obama named me to two different ambassadorships, and I have tremendous respect for President Obama. Uh, but I have to admit, I was very disappointed in the reaction of the Obama administration to the events of 2014. First of all, I, I think most importantly was the reaction to the military takeover of Crimea. I mean, people talk about the referendum, but actually what happened is that he sent troops in there, the famous little green men. 
1994, uh, we and the UK gave, uh, and of course Russia too, gave Ukraine security assurances that we would uh, stand by their territorial integrity. So I understand why a lot of leaders in the West did not want Ukraine to shoot back, to use military force to prevent the takeover of Crimea. But the fact that Putin was able to take over sovereign territory of Ukraine without firing a shot, I mean, obviously, it was a it was a, a very damaging signal to send to an aggressive leader like uh, like Putin. To me, that was a, a terrible message to send. The other part of this was, of course, the Buddhist, Budapest Memorandum said that um, you know the UK and the US uh, will take measures to uh, you know if Ukraine has its territorial integrity violated. And we did very little. <laughs> we called the UN Security Council meeting, and the Russians just said, "Oh no, we didn't violate their territorial integrity. We didn't use nuclear weapons." It sent a message to Putin that, sure, the U.S. is going to get really angry and is going to impose sanctions, but it'll be relatively cost-free. Uh, the other terrible thing that happened, of course, was uh, within a year uh, of the annexation of Crimea. Western countries were uh, conducting business with Russia, business as usual. The Nord Stream 2 uh, agreement was signed, of course, in 2015. So it was just a whole array of bad signals seven and eight years ago. Mr. Kelly, you were a U.S. ambassador to Georgia and know the post-Soviet space. Why Georgia and Ukraine didn't get an invitation to join NATO as the Baltic countries did? For decades, Kyiv and Tbilisi had such aspirations, but some European countries, for example Germany, didn't let that happen. As a result, Russia finally attacked Georgia and Ukraine. Does Ukraine have a potential to join NATO now, I mean after this war? Well, the answer to your last question is I think it has a better perspective now than it ever had uh, because of what uh, what is happening you know, back in 2008, the U.S. administration, President George uh, W. Bush, made a big push to bring both Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. But you know that in NATO, you have to have all the members of NATO, at least, you know, not to block something. It's called the consensus rule. So all countries have to join a consensus. Yes, as you as you pointed out, there were several countries, including Germany, who were not quite ready to accept Ukraine and Georgia into the alliance. And I think the primary reason for that was, uh, one, business, <laughs> uh, especially energy. Uh, you know, as we know, the, uh, the Central Europeans in particular depend uh, a lot on Russian natural gas in particular. Uh, but I think the other reason was there has been a kind of a pipe dream, a fantasy that if we don't push Russia too hard, they will integrate with the West and become a responsible member of Europe, you know, a responsible member of the of the Western community. Uh, and in 2008, you know, there was, it was just the, the first seven years of the of the Putin's rule. And, you know, up until 2007, I would argue he was at least talking the talk. He was using the kind of pro integration rhetoric, you know, the, the World Trade Organization, the NATO-Russia Council, 
But it was a, a miscalculation on the part of Europeans that, you know, that we needed to keep working to, to bring Putin into the fold. Putin was never going to come into the fold. Uh, he was never going to integrate with, uh, he was never going to be a responsible partner. Ambassador Kelly, what is your opinion about Putin's nuclear brinkmanship? He and his inner circle constantly talk about the potential use of nuclear bombs against Ukraine. Just recently, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu made phone calls to his counterparts in Western countries talking about a dirty nuclear bomb. How should we react to this escalating nuclear rhetoric? I don't think that we should escalate our actions. You know, I don't think that's necessary. I think what's necessary is what we're doing. And I'm glad that the three Western nuclear powers, uh, the United States, the United Kingdom and France, all called Shoigu. And the three of them issued a very firm statement, basically saying, we know what you're doing and you're not going to get away with what we call a false flag operation to instigate a, an incident like this and then try to blame it on the Ukrainians. No one's going to buy that. And we need to be very clear that, first of all, that we will know that it's Russia who does it. And uh, second of all, that there will be consequences for this. So it's just part and parcel. It's just a, you know, a, a well-used tactic of, uh, of Putin to instill fear in the minds of Westerners and basically to get into to our heads to try and de-escalate the situation. And for them, de-escalation is stop arming the Ukrainians. Uh, that's what they want. And the Russians want to get us back to what our normal reaction was in Georgia in 2008 and in Ukraine in 2014. And that's push first the Georgians, then the Ukrainians to negotiate uh, for a ceasefire. And that's what happened, you know, with Sarkozy in 2008. That's not going to happen now. Mr. Kelly, as a U.S. Foreign Service officer, you co-chaired the Minsk Group at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe that was designed to help in solving the post-Soviet conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Currently, in the shadows of the Ukraine war, we saw an escalation in the Nagorno-Karabakh area once again. Plus, Iran and Azerbaijan exchange threats with each other. It looks like Vladimir Putin opened a Pandora box and and began a season of wars. What is your opinion about it? Uh, and on the one hand, I, you know, I'm optimistic, but on the other hand, I'm also uh, worried. So I'm worried because I'm afraid that the uh, authorities in Baku, that the, the Azerbaijani uh, government has decided the best uh, way for them to get what they want, which is their territory back, is to use uh, military means But I'm also uh, I'm optimistic because of uh, some of the talks, direct talks that are going on. And there seems to be a president now in Yerevan who is open to dialogue uh, first with the with the Azerbaijanis, but also with the Turks. And I think bring down the temperature is to end the blockade on Armenia, open up the border with Turkey. I think that will, as I say, that will kind of lower the temperature. It will show that that Turkey is not just supporting Azerbaijan in all of its goals, including military goals. Turkey also sees an interest in uh, de-escalating the situation by by opening up the border. Yeah, it's it's both worrying and uh, I think encouraging what's what's happening right now. The interesting part of this is, you know, I haven't mentioned Russia. <laughs> you know, Russia elbowed out the the Minsk group 
marginalized the U.S. and France and took over the, the negotiations. But, um, you know, they are basically being ignored by the Azerbaijanis. And, uh, and I think the Armenians are just very angry at the Russians because they haven't done more to prevent attacks against uh, Armenia proper. My next question is about the perspectives of an international tribunal to prosecute Vladimir Putin and his government of Russia for the war crimes committed during the ongoing war in Ukraine. Ukraine and the Baltic countries, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, have already called for the creation of such a Nuremberg-style tribunal, and the Netherlands agreed to host it in Hague. Ambassador Kelly, is this the right international mechanism to bring Moscow to justice? Well, I think, you know, as I as I suggested before, you know, one of the reasons we're in this terrible situation with the biggest war in Europe since World War II is because we haven't imposed costs on Putin. We haven't established justice for his naked aggression against his neighbors. So it is something that is, I think, really necessary for long-lasting peace in this region. Of course, there's not going to be a tribunal unless there's a regime change, frankly. If we go back to the 90s in Yugoslavia, the reason why Milosevic was sent to The Hague was because there was a regime change where a, uh, a democratically elected leader, Zoran Djindjic, agreed to send Milosevic to answer for his crimes in Kosovo and, and Bosnia. So it is necessary. Uh, I mean, I don't think there can be lasting peace without justice, but it will only happen when you have a government that's willing to impose that justice. My next question is about Belarus and President Alexander Lukashenko. He helps Putin to attack and bomb Ukraine in many ways, except only that he doesn't send actual Belarusian troops into the battle yet. Does President Lukashenko hope to survive after Putin? Well, if he wants to survive, he, he depends on Putin for security and I think, you know, for his economy. And he's in a he's in a very, very difficult situation. He normally gets out of these situations by uh, trying to balance both the West and Russia, but he can't do that anymore. He can't go to the West. He can only go to Putin. First of all, I don't think that it's militarily, how should I put this, militarily reasonable or or possible for you know another attack on Kiev right now. Uh, they don't have the capability to do it. Also, the last thing I think that Putin wants, because he needs that northern border uh, to be able to launch attacks from, you know, air attacks, the last thing he wants is instability in Minsk. And of course, it wasn't that long ago that there were tens of thousands of Belarusians in the streets protesting Lukashenko, so he doesn't want that. While the Ukrainians need to take it seriously, so this to me is, it is, a, is an information operation. Basically, he wants Zelensky to think that he has to move forces from the east and the south to defend his north because he's winning on the ground. And Russia is trying to lessen pressure on their own forces in the south by sowing some doubt that they're going to invade from the north, too. My last question is about the coming general elections in the U.S. Congress in November that may change a party configuration. Many in Ukraine are worried that if Republicans win a majority in the House or Senate or in both chambers, it may have consequences for Ukraine in terms of less help from America. Is there a reason to be worried about it? No, and there's two reasons for it. One reason is... If you look at the votes for the previous aid packages, 
a strong majority of Republicans uh, voted for it, something like 70 to 80 percent. So it was a strong bipartisan support. The reason why position of the Republicans was highlighted is because the only people who voted against it were Republicans. All the Democrats uh, voted for it. And then, of course, you have Kevin McCarthy, who likely will be the next leader of the majority in the House, casting doubt if his own party you know, will vote for more aid. Uh, I think it was a political mistake on his part. You know, as Liz Cheney said yesterday, she said, you know, she doesn't understand why Kevin McCarthy would want to align himself with the pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party. So I'm not that concerned about it. The other reason I'm not concerned about it, if for some reason there are a lot of, you know, these isolationist Republicans who are who are voted in, there is still time between now and January when the next Congress is seated to vote another package. And on the Senate side, I think uh, Mitch McConnell is 100 percent pro-Ukraine. Uh, and um, if they don't think they can pass it in January, well, they can pass it in, in November or December, you know, the next the next tranche. On this optimistic note, I'm ending this episode of my podcast, Ukraine Decoded. My name is Viktor Kovalenko, and my guest today was Ian Kelly, a former U.S. ambassador to Georgia and OSCE, who is currently an ambassador at residence at Northwestern University in Illinois. We talked about Russian war against Ukraine. Mr. Kelly, thank you for joining me. Okay, thanks, Viktor. I hope you can help me in making this podcast by donating to my PayPal at paypal.me slash Mr. Kovalenko. You can also find a direct link for donations in the description to this episode. Thank you for listening and so long.